know God has not promised that all covenant children will be saved. So, what does God promise through his precious word to our covenant children? I would give you Hosea 1.7 and Isaiah 49.25. I mentioned Isaiah 49.25 this morning. One of you can look up Hosea 1-7 and see what it says and read it out loud for us. Thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. And I have a very dear friend who is really my mother's best friend, one of my mother's best friends. And she and her husband went to be missionaries in China or Singapore, and they, when they came back home for furlough, they got involved with a couple of people who were being led by a spiritual leader, mm. and it turned into a cult, and they were all living together and swapping husbands and wives, and it was awful. And the mother knew, the mother of my mother's good friend, knew what was going on and was course on her knees day and night about that and she found this verse and she knew the Lord gave her that verse that the Lord would save her children her her daughter had been a strong Christian and he she was still saying she was a strong Christian but that this leader was being led by the Lord to have everybody live together and um, she actually so this mother of her kept on praying this prayer and um, this woman actually fled the commune and then and she took like two little ones and then the husband fled with the other three in another on another day so they actually realized this is totally wrong and uh, we've been duped so anyway that's mm. that's one story especially that is how I found out about that verse is because that woman the daughter herself that was my mother's friend told me about that and I'm I have used it also with my own just prayed and prayed it. So somebody read Hosea 1-7. Somebody that's got a good, strong voice. Go ahead. Can everybody hear her? Okay. Hosea 1-7. I truly believe that even in Deuteronomy, when you walk by the way and you talk to your children when you're sitting and when you're rising and you tell the children about this wonderful Lord we have, the children will eventually come back to that. Even if they're old, they will say, the ancient paths are the true paths. And God, God hears the prayers. Uh, my husband had an amazing testimony, or has an amazing testimony. He came from a strong Christian home and missionaries in, the, in uh, the Congo. When they came home, he was 15 years old. He'd been in the Congo since he was 14 months old. The shock of coming into American teen culture in 1960 was horrible for him. He was wearing missionary barrel clothes, and the slacks were wide but all the guys were wearing the skinny jeans that they wear now. And 
he felt completely out of place. And of course, they, because he's a big guy, they thought, oh, football player. He never played football. He played football in Africa, which is soccer. And um, he felt completely lost and he missed his African friends. And slowly but surely, he went away from the Lord, though he loved his parents and he knew that their faith was real, but he didn't want to, he didn't want to deal with God. And so at the age of 27, after many different jobs, many runnings away from God, and his parents for a while did not even know what he was doing or where he was. He was a skydiver. He was a stock car racer. He owned a bar for a while. He was on drugs and alcohol at one point and um, just having a horrible life. And he finally decided, I'm going to kill myself. So he's had just broken up with a girl that used to be if you remember the magazines back in the 60s and 70s, she was the white horse gin model on the white horse. And my husband was engaged to her. And he realized that she wasn't a Christian. He wasn't himself, but he knew that this marriage was not going to work. So he broke it off like three weeks before the wedding. And the night that he decided to kill himself, he was on his way to see her and apologize to her for calling it off. But still knowing he wanted to explain more that they really shouldn't be married. And then he decided instead to just try to kill himself. So he drove his sports car about 120 miles per hour into a parked car off of I-10 near New Orleans. <clears throat> he did not know that the people who were in the parked car were actually switching drivers in the front of the car. He couldn't see, he was going too fast and crashed into this car. Fortunately, they were not hurt. They got knocked down, but they were not hurt. But he was thrown into the engine of his car, and there was a Holiday Inn right off the exit where he had just crashed into this car. And the Holiday Inn called, of course, emergency and police, and they arrived very quickly. But the car was in flames, and Walt was in the engine. And so they just stood there watching, figuring, well, this guy is gone. Fortunately, I said, the two guys that were changing their driving um, were fine. Two men appeared and took him out of the car, pulled him out, put him into the ambulance. Not a singe, not any hair was burned on Walt. He was unconscious, but um, of course they ran to the hospital. And the police said, we need to know who those people were. So they'd asked everybody, they asked Holiday Inn, did you see two men come? They, were, they disappeared. So we believe those were angels. And, um, I'm so very thankful that God had me marry him. Um, so in the hospital, he had many internal injuries. He had uh, one leg broken in four places. And in the hospital, uh, as he was recovering, there were black nurses who were praying for him. And so four months, he was, he was determined not to give in to the Lord, almost four months. And of course, his parents came to visit him and he told them, I don't want people coming to me and preaching at me. I don't want, I just, he was angry. He was angry that he hadn't killed himself. Didn't really understand how he got out of the wreck. But um, somebody gave him Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is There. And he began to think and began to think, realize God had saved him. And so one night, <clears throat> he turned his face to the wall and said, Lord, if you can forgive a guy like me, I will serve you the rest of my life. He had 
found out when he got ordained as a pastor that his parents had been praying since he was a baby that he would be a minister. So um, got out of the hospital. I know this is more of a question and answer, but it's just a wonderful story to tell. Anyway, gets out of the hospital. And he, so he had this amazing sleep that night. He said when he woke up, he thought that was a completely different sleep from what I usually have. Hadn't been sleeping well anyway. And one of the black nurses came in and looked at his face and said, Hallelujah, he got the Holy Ghost. <laughs> she goes running down the hall and tells all the other black nurses who had been praying for him. And they all came in and were just, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And he was embarrassed. He said, Shh, quiet. But, but he was thankful for them. And so when he got to the hospital, he had crutches. And he thought, I've got to talk to my dad. And I have shamed his name. And I need to really ask forgiveness. I was a prodigal son. And so he called the office to, um, his father was an architect in New Orleans. And he asked if he could have an appointment to see his dad. And this, the secretary of his dad said, you don't need an appointment to see your dad. He said, well, it's his work day and I want to make sure that I have about an hour with him. And so when his dad, saw, he, he said, don't tell my dad that it's me. So when his dad saw him, he said, son, you didn't need to make an appointment. You know you can come in here anytime. And Walt said, Dad, I have a lot to confess and ask for forgiveness for, so do you mind if, if we sit and talk about it? And Dad said, of course, I don't mind. And they both cried. And uh, Walt thought the more I confess, the more it's going to make him cry more. So he just said, Dad, I just want to ask you forgiveness for everything. I've done so many wrong things. And you all have been such good parents to me. And he knew that they were praying for him, but they didn't ever pressure him. They didn't ever go and preach to him. You know, they just, one night in the bar that he was managing, he was mixing drinks, and he felt these eyes on him that he thought shouldn't be there. And he looked up, and it was his dad. And he said, Dad, let me finish this drink, and we'll go outside in the parking lot. And his dad said, your mom and I are a little worried about you. That's all his dad said. And he said, Dad, I'm doing fine. He said, he was said to me, uh, he was living on vodka and orange juice and peanut butter. <clears throat> and he had terrible circles under his eyes. He was doing two jobs. And his father said, just want you to know we love you, son. And left. So he always had that in the background. My parents love me and they pray for me, but he was really rebelling those years. So very thankful for what the Lord did. Oh, that so that day he had gone to see his father in the office. Um, he's on his way home. He took the bus. He didn't have a car anymore. And he's on crutches and he's going down the sidewalk to his home, his parents' home. And uh, he hears the phone ring because his mother liked to save electricity and didn't use air conditioning. And so here's the phone ring, screen windows, and he's hobbling along. And his mother comes to the door and says, Walter, we've got a phone call. Didn't tell, she didn't tell him who it was. And so he comes in says hello and it's his dad and his dad says welcome home son so of course it always has made him cry to keep saying that to tell that story but so very thankful for the lord's answers to prayers and of course his grandmother shepherd used to say to him when he was a teenager you better not shame the name of the shepherds or the name of the lord god you know that we're praying for you and so he heard that so often, and he, you know, had this guilt feeling so all, all the time 
but he said I was just determined to have my own way. But the Lord took me away from that. And then he came to seminary after that. I met him the second year he was at seminary. So he was a hippie, but I did not see him as a hippie that second year. He cut his hair right before he moved into my mother's house. <laughs> he said, you would have been chasing me as a hippie, I'm sure. And I said, no, nope, I would not have. <laughs> okay, another question. Could you give an example, a couple examples of waiting on the Lord? What does it look like? That's a very good question. Thinking of Isaiah 30, 15 to 18. It's, it's a conscious and intentional promise to the Lord where you say to yourself, I am going to wait on what the Lord wants to do about this. And you have to do it over and over again because we humans want to take control of it again or worry over it or do something about it. And when we do something about something that the Lord can do in his own timing, we usually mess up what what he will be doing behind the scenes and what he plans to do. So I would just say consciously and intentionally saying, Lord, I will wait on you. And that's why meditating on his word and sitting still and reading verses like he blesses those who wait for him. Um, and I gave you, I think I gave you Isaiah 64 also. Did I give you that one? I just love that. I just, it says we don't have any clue what the Lord can do. Um, not, eye has not seen nor ear heard. You make your no, name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you, when you did awesome things that we didn't look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. And I missed the part where it says, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. There's a promise there. He acts for you. So it's it's a serious dealing you do with the Lord. You say, I'm going to wait on you for this. That's what my mother had to do when she was hoping and waiting for my father to decide that he really was going to marry her. And it wasn't five years. Once they got to Ecuador, it was a year and a half later that they did get married. But he saw his main, my father's problem with marrying her quickly was he was with Indians in the middle of the Amazon, and he had been told by the previous missionary, a homeopathic doctor from England named Dr. Tidmarsh, that women could not handle the Amazon jungle. His wife had not been able to uh, do well. And so he just assumed that most white women couldn't live in the Amazon. <laughs> so he told my father that. He said, going to have to, a woman would have to have a very strong constitution and she would have to also not mind the bugs and be willing to, you know, live in that situation. Well, in Quito, my mother and father started climbing mountains together, 12,000, 14,000 foot peaks. And my mother, they'd leave at two o'clock in the morning to see the sunrise and she would march up that mountain. She had hiked a lot of mountains up in New Hampshire with her family. And she was so in love. Of course, she had lots of energy. 
So he was quite impressed with that. And the longer he was with the Kichwas by himself, with another single man, Pete Fleming, the more he realized the women need a woman to teach them. He was mainly teaching the men, and he said, I think I need that's with me. And that became more and more clear during that year. My mother and father each had a catastrophe happen before my father realized it's time for me to tell her we're going to get married. He had asked her to marry him in January of 53, but he couldn't tell her when it was going to be because he felt like he and Pete needed to continue on this work with the Kichwas. <clears throat> but my mother had worked on translation of another Indian language for about seven months. She'd done a whole bunch of three by five cards of this Indian language called Chafiki, which is the Colorado Indians. They live on the western side of the Andes. Very difficult language. And she worked with a, a British colleague. The two of them worked together, writing down the words, working with a Christian, the only Christian in the Colorado, among the Colorado Indians. He was a wonderful help because he knew Spanish and he could explain the words. And then he was murdered. And their language materials, I can't remember which happened first, but so he's murdered. They had that one interpreter they had was gone. And then they, they sent all the language materials to Quito for safekeeping. The suitcase with the language materials, all the three by five cards was stolen off the truck on the way to Quito. So everything my mother had done for eight or nine months was gone. And everything my father had built with Jim, with uh, Pete Fleming, a school, a chapel, a home for Ed and Mary Lou McCulley, one other building, like a small storage building, went down the cliff in a flood. And so they both had to face the fact that sometimes God allows things that we don't understand at all, but we still trust him. My mother said, all of her life, the Lord was asking her in every situation, will you trust me? Will you trust me? So I think we can take a verse like that and we say, Lord, you say you act for those who wait for you. So I'm going to wait on you. It just seems quite simple and obvious that we need to not try to do what we want to do our own way, but wait on to see what the Lord will do. some ways you can practice contentment when you're longing for a different season of life the grass is greener on the other side mindset it's a hard question it's it's through this relationship with our father our tender loving father that we can trust him for the time that he has us in the place where we think we really don't want to be. When I was in Africa, thinking I, I was so excited about going and being missionary, thinking I was going to learn French fast, and I couldn't. And uh, as I think I already told you all, I asked my husband, what should I do with most of my time? Because we had a full-time maid. Every, every missionary does, at least in that country. And um, he just said, I want you to be hospitable, which is what we'd always done since Louisiana days. And waiting on the Lord means serving at the same time that you're not doing what you know you want to do, but you have to wait for the Lord to do. So I would say with my own children, 
as they've turned into adults. Some of them are not choosing to go to church every Sunday. That's very common among the millennials. But I have a couple that are out of the millennial age now. Um, <clears throat> prayer. It's just active trust, active prayer. It's simply, I will wait on what he wants because he knows what's best. And uh, when I, those first five years in California, when I didn't like being there, I wanted to be on the mission field, I kept on, of course, raising my children, homeschooling, feeding them meals. And, uh, you know, I, I was aware that I shouldn't be disgruntled because I was aware the Lord had brought us there. Uh, but, but really accepting it and thinking, well, we might be here 10 years instead of just a few years. Um, that was a work of the Lord. And that's when I found that Isaiah um, 30 passage, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. Quietness upon him shall be your strength. So I don't know that I've answered that question very well, but just active trust, active prayer, active continue to serve. You know, you know what you are supposed to be doing. Um, you wish you could be doing something else. We even in the Congo, I was so excited to go to the Congo. You know, just my mother's whole life being a missionary, and I just had always wanted to be a missionary from the time I was about 20. And my husband had wanted to go back to the mission field since he had left at 15. And we kept praying and praying that he would send us to the mission field. And it didn't happen for 31 years. We were married for 31 years before we went to the Congo. And that those three years were good for the three children that we took with us and for me and Walt. But my mother began dementia right before those three years. Uh, my son was diagnosed with something called Charcot-Marie-Tooth, one of the three that was the youngest. Um, he was the second youngest. In fact, he was the one I was holding in arms when my husband came and said, should we do a Bible study together? And then um, I had high blood pressure, which I never expected to have. My mother never said she had high blood pressure. I was active. I felt healthy. I was proud of my health. I ate lots of vegetables, and I couldn't believe I had high blood pressure. But menopause brought that on. And uh, my husband said, I think we're supposed to stay in the States, especially because your mother needs you to come visit her. And I prayed and prayed and prayed that the Lord would give us a job, my husband a job, near within a few hours of my mother. Never happened. There was one possibility of a church needing an intern, what do you call it, not an intern, intern? no, a pastor that is there until the next pastor comes. Interim, interim pastor. So there was one possibility of one hour away from my mother and his getting an interim pastor job. No, they decided they didn't want him because he was too conservative. So it <clears throat> didn't happen. We waited and we hoped, but, and we even prayed that we could be near his mother who was in Louisiana. The Lord didn't give us a job in either place. So we moved to, we moved to North Carolina and started a church, which we didn't feel adequate at all for. And it was long waiting and praying and asking, how are we supposed to do this when neither of us have administrative gifts? You're starting a church. You do need an administrator. <laughs> but the Lord blessed us in those nine years that we were in North Carolina. And the church just was a tiny church. It was 30 or 40 people when we left. And uh, my husband said, I think the Lord wanted me to have small churches because it's humbling.
this is like two parts. Um, what advice would you give a pastor's wife whose husband is leading the church down an unbiblical path? And in the same scenario, how can church members deal with it in a godly manner? Then third, how would you counsel pastors' children who are now dealing with having been neglected by their father? Thank you, and God bless. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in answering questions like this, and I don't have the wisdom except that I would think the wife needs to go to the elders. And I don't know if the elders are already with him on this wrong path or whether they are watching this and wondering how in the world can our pastor do this. Um, but I would say first going to the elders and then um, with tears and prayers asking her husband to reconsider what he's doing and going maybe to a biblical counselor if the elders are not doing anything to change anything going to a biblical counselor and saying, what shall I do? Um, boy, a lot of prayer. <laughs> and I don't, like I said, I don't have a, a, you know, expert or very good answer, but certainly, it certainly is a very difficult situation. Resting in what the Lord has allowed and yet also begging him to change the situation. Um, there's nothing wrong with begging God with tears for me, when I'm on my knees, I can concentrate much better on my prayers than I can if I'm just sitting down with a list in front of me. For some reason, being on my knees helps me. And even that is in fits and starts. It's not like I'm doing that every morning for an hour like you hear D.L. Moody or Charles Spurgeon did three hours every morning. You know, just <laughs> I can't imagine. But um, definitely throwing yourself upon God and saying, Lord, you know how to straighten this out. You know how to, you know what's the right thing. And would you please, by your Holy Spirit, convict my husband of, of this wrong path that he's taking and please help the elders to be honest and forthright in talking to him. Other children, how they took it. Well, my, um, our experience in South Carolina was pretty awful. At first, uh, after a year, it was awful. Um, we went from California to South Carolina to a small ARP, that's Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. We were in a PCA church. The church called him. Uh, they had been taught by Jay Adams. Some of you know of that counselor, biblical counselor. My husband had been mentored by Jay Adams. Jay thought that Walt was the perfect guy to follow him, and uh, he was ready to retire, and he was still writing a lot of books. And so um, my husband went, had three weeks with Jay, and preached in the church, and kind of wanted to revamp his whole way of preaching. He thought he had several people in our church in California saying, you don't, you don't preach lateral, laterally or in organized fashion, you preach sort of in circles. <laughs> and Walt felt like he was a conceptual preacher, and he felt like he was a failure. So he asked Jay Adams, just show me how, how to preach like you do. And Jay said, well, why don't you preach on a Sunday morning? I'll listen to you, and then I'll see what, what, how you do. And afterwards, he said, I don't think you should change a thing. 
think you preached fine. You have a much more evangelical, evangelistic spirit than I have. And so I think you're the man for this church. Well, of course, we prayed about it. And leaving California, taking at least seven kids. Our oldest was kind of on his own um, at the time. Not in a bad way, but he chose to stay in California. It was a huge move for them. For me, who loves change and said, yay, we're going to South Carolina. We're going to have a little country you know, a little land that you can't have in California. I just thought it was going to be a fun adventure, not realizing how it would affect the older kids who had mostly grown up in California. And so we go, and uh, the first year was just the typical honeymoon year. Everybody loves you. Of course, the congregation had voted 100% for him to come. They followed whatever Jay Adams said. And then a um, year and a half later, See, yeah, got there in November. So a year and two months later, we had Henry Henry Krabbenbaum come and speak on the Holy Spirit. The elder who liked to be in charge said, "I didn't like what he said. He's teaching heresy. Didn't like what Krabbenbaum said. He said we're not having him back." And my husband said, "Krabbenbaum has taught my wife and me a lot, and uh, we really we want to have him back at least once a year." I said, "Well, I I don't think he was teaching the truth at all." It was about the, the, the story of if a son asks for bread, does the father give him a stone? And so Walt had a little argument with him, but nothing major happened at that point. January, then in about April, one of the younger elders who had been trained by Jay Adams came to Walt and said, I'm learning something new from you that I didn't learn. I don't mean to knock Jay Adams. He certainly did write some really good books biblical counseling. and We believe in that. He said, I have a sense of the presence of the Lord when you pray and when you preach that I haven't had before. He said, Jay was a really good teacher, but I just, I have a new love for my wife. I have a new love for the word. I'm, I'm reading more of the word and hungry for it. And he said, I, I'm just, I just want to tell you that what you've been preaching has really helped me. And Walt said, would you give a testimony at how, especially how your love for your family and your wife has changed? And he said, well, they don't give testimonies in this church. And Walt said, what? <laughs> he said, well, I'm pastor now, and I think testimonies are important for people to hear. It's not that we're going to have one every Sunday, but we're certainly going to have more than none at all. And so Bill gave his testimony on a Sunday night. The next morning, the same elder came to Walt and said, I didn't like his testimony at all. He said he's, he's not ready to be an elder. He's been being trained to be an elder, but he's teaching. He's, he's, I just didn't like what he said. My husband said, I'm sorry, but he was speaking the truth from his heart. 104 people left that week. Didn't come back to the church. Hardly any exit interviews, hardly any of, any of them. I mean, maybe one couple came talked to him about why they were leaving. Thought he was teaching heresy. Walt was starting to teach heresy. Used the phrase prompting of the spirit one time. Walt and I are not charismatic. We are very willing to receive whatever the Holy Spirit, whatever he wants to give to us, but we're not begging for the, <laughs> the speaking in tongues or anything. We just know that the Lord can do what he wants to do. And um, it was hurtful for 104 people. We had about 170 in the church when we moved there. So that was a huge lesson to us that you can't follow one man and think
think everything he says is the truth. Oh, I said he had started. Maybe twice Walt had used the phrase, the prompting of the spirit. And the daughter-in-law of Jay said to him, you can't use that phrase. Walt said, why not? How else would I have known to do such and such without the prompting of the Holy Spirit? And she said, well, that gives people the impression that everybody needs to have that experience of having the prompting of the Spirit. You've got to let God be God, and you've got to ask him to do what he wants to do with your life. And so, for our children, I'm sorry, I've gotten off the question. The, que the children moving to South Carolina was harder than we realized it would be. The ones in high school had quite a hard time. We had been homeschooling, and we put our fourth child, Jim, into high school at uh, as a sophomore, <clears throat> into a public school. It wasn't a great school. So he gained a few friends. He was a great singer. He joined the choir, and <laughs> he wanted to wrestle like his grandfather did, and second week of wrestling he got um a, not a staph infection a ringworm ringworm on his cheek from the mats i guess and the coach said you can't you can't do any wrestling until it's completely gone well that took the whole season so he never got to wrestle that was very disappointing for him and then our daughter christiana who was the third one so jim's the fourth um I homeschooled her through her junior year and then put her in school as a senior. Well, that was a pretty poor decision, I think. She didn't have the friends in the high school at all. Uh, she did have one friend, but she was going to a Christian school. And so I think her senior year was very, very hard, and I didn't really know how to handle it. I didn't know what to do. with. I could see that she was getting depressed or she was just sad. I didn't. And, and she really wanted to be in drama, and the drama already had their group of uh, players. And so I think the whole move was hard for all of them. We all loved where we lived. We were able to get a house with 13 acres. We had a horse for Colleen. Colleen was one of the girls here. <clears throat> but I did not know how it affects children to make a big move like that. So. When all those people left, two of our kids said, well, one of the kids said they had talked to each other before supper. He said, Dad, we've, we've, um, we've all voted, and we've decided, and they waited. And Walt is looking at them, <laughs> and we've decided to stay with you. <laughs> and all those people left, and that was so, you know, tender for them to say to their dad, but the one, one of the family with that main elder who had said he didn't like Krabbendam, um, they were two of the boys were the best friends of my of my um, son and daughter, Jim and Christiana, and so it was very hard for them to see them leave, and they didn't really understand what was the problem, and so all we could do, I think, the thing we did wrong was we talked too much about church people with our children, and that is totally wrong. Uh, the children should see that the parents are, if the father is a pastor, parents are working together to love the congregation and uh, are not gossiping. We even had a little silly phrase, ooh, church secrets, church secrets, and they would hear, that's your church secret. No, and 
one silly one was that our son had discovered one girl liked to clip her fingernails in the back row every Sunday. And um, our son wasn't going to tell us who it was. And of course, everybody wanted to know who's clipping their fingernails every Sunday. <laughs> but it was hard for them. And we don't really have any good uh, way of, of dealing with what we did wrong, except to say, my husband often said, I think I made a big mistake leaving California. We were quite happy. The church had grown a lot. We'd been there 10 years, and Jay Adams had advised Walt. We were asking, how do we discern God's will about whether we should move to South Carolina or stay in California? And he said, well, you write down your pros and cons, and you pray, and you ask God to help you decide. And we went to talk to him about it, and I said, Dr. Adams, could I ask, and I knew how close Walt and he were, I said, could I ask if... Um, it's okay to ask for some kind of a sign from the Lord that we are supposed to move to South Carolina because the pros and cons are so equal. We don't, we may not, we're very happy in our church right here in California. And he jumped on me and said, those who look for a sign are from an evil and adulterous generation. And I just shut down. I thought, I didn't mean a sign. I just said to him, I said, I don't mean a sign up in, you know, writing in the sky or lightning strike us or anything. I just mean something in the circumstances that would show us it is time for us to move. You wouldn't hear of it. But it was Krabbendam that, it, that uh, explained to us about searching, seeking God's will, desiring his will, and, and what, doing what we delighted in. And my husband really had an evangel spirit and, and gift. And he he said, Krabbendam said, do you have your elders all with you on that evangelism spirit? Do they go out visiting with you to share Christ? And Walt said, no. He said, well, then you go and ask those people, because he'd already visited South Carolina, ask the elders in the South Carolina church, do they have zeal for evangelism? Do they want to go visiting and telling people about Christ? So Walt got to ask them, and they all said, of course, yes, we want to do that. So to us, that was a sign that was what we're supposed to do. But anyway, you make your, you make your steps, and you think you're, you're doing the right thing, and you look back, and you see some, Walt would say, broken bodies behind you. And um, we just, we had seven years in the South Carolina church. Once all those people left, the Lord started bringing people in. We had always prayed for a multicultural church. And in the South, it's very unusual to have blacks and whites together. And the Lord brought a black couple that is still in that church. They brought their brother and sister. And then we had a whole bunch of Hispanics in the church. So the Lord answered that prayer and it began, the church began to grow, regrow. And it was wonderful. So the children watch all that. And I think... We were unwise in our talking, trying to explain, you know, they didn't like some of dad's phrases in the sermon, so they've gone to another church. And we were, we just didn't do very well. So I don't have a good answer for what do you do with the children that are wondering. In our case, we don't think Walt was doing anything wrong. Um, but in that case, from that question, the, the children are wondering, what are we supposed to do if dad's going down the wrong path? If the mother is talking to the children without the father and saying, we, I believe he's 
choosing something that's unbiblical to do for the church. Bring it up to the Lord and you say, Lord, show us what to do. And I think the biblical counseling from someone is very important. And prayers, asking people to pray. Like I said, I'm not an expert in answering all these questions. Something more lighthearted. <laughs> what form of birth control did you guys use after eight kids? <laughs> I am going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll share that one. <laughs> This is the last one. What advice would you have for how best to be an encouragement to people around you to be authentic? How would you? What advice would you have for how to best encourage, be an encouragement to people around you to be thankful? When people are complaining. I try, and I've had other people do this to me, you know, not just look at the bright side, but I try to say, well, let's, let's be thankful that such and such, or let's be thankful for how God is still, still sovereign. Um, how, how in the world can we do exactly the right thing in a situation when we don't read the question one more time? I'm still kind of trying to get my mind around how would I answer it. I'm sorry. Thankful. I would I would say let's I, I mean especially I've done this with the children is what can we think of that we are really thankful for? We would go around the table and everybody has has to say something of what they're thankful for. But if there are negative situations where everybody's down, I think talking as a family about how important it is to see that God is sovereign and that he is still in control, even though things are looking bad or, or people are complaining a lot, just being able to say, let's pray, whatever the, the situation, let's pray for that situation, or let's pray as a family that we will respond in the way God wants us to respond to this situation and that we learn to be thankful in the midst of this. That's all I can say. That's the last one. Okay. Thank you all for listening. I didn't, <laughs> thank you. I didn't get the question that so many people ask is tell us where all your children are. And so I won't answer that without nobody asking. <laughs> it's very sad that we do not have any children nearby. Yes, you have a question. Okay. Yes. Get into the word, get on your knees, and ask yourself how much you, if you can honestly look at 
am I doing this because I really want so-and-so to notice or certain people to notice that I'm doing this, or am I doing this because I know the Lord has led me to do this? And there is so freeing to know when we are doing something for the Lord that we don't have to, we don't have to say two days later, I did so-and-so for such, you know, I did such-and-such for so-and-so. We don't have to tell anybody that, you know, it's for the Lord and there's joy in doing it. So really seeking him to help you discern when you're doing things to look like you're really busy with good works. And that's what the Pharisees were all about, being busy with good works and being proud of themselves. And again, just saying, Lord, I know that there, there is time in one day to do all that you want me to do. There's not time in one day to do all the things that I think I have to do or should do. And I am famous for writing down a list of 12 to 24 things that I should do and very have a hard time figuring out what's the most important. And I called my mother one morning crying because I had a list of 24 things that needed to be done. And uh, she said, Val, she did, what's What's, so she, I read the 20, she wanted me to know what, the, she wanted to know what they were, and so I read the 24 things. She said, well, what time is it right there? And she was in Massachusetts, I was in California. And I said, it's quarter of 12. And she said, well, don't you need to start fixing lunch for the children? And I said, yeah, that's right. That's the first thing, yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't on the list, you know. And she said, well, sometimes it's just exactly what's in front of you. The Lord wants you to do the next thing. And so she used that phrase a lot in her talks, do the next thing. And I would just say, again, when you bring your day to the Lord and you say, Lord, please give me discernment about what's most important, what you want me to do. Most executives say that you can only get three good things done, three major things done in one day. And I think for us housewives who really do have, you know, we probably go through at least 15 things we do in one day. Um, it's, it's a matter of just saying, Lord, is it necessary for me to iron all the sheets this week? And I, I do like to iron sheets. My mother ironed sheets. And so then I let them pile up too much in the, in the laundry basket. So it takes me two whole evenings to get all the sheets ironed. And I don't iron the whole sheet. I fold it four times and then I iron the top, you know, this much of where the sheet is coming off. And the rest of it is... <laughs> the rest of it is kind of wrinkly. But anyway, I'm, I just, I have unbelievable, uh, um, not realistic expect expectations of what I think I should be able to do in a day. And I look at the list at the end of the day, and it's usually about three or four things that I accomplished. And, and this is with no children at home. You know, I'm, I'm still wanting to garden. I still want to take walks where I get enough steps in and, um, I want to spend time with my husband. I used to basically ignore him because I was so busy. But now that the children are all gone, I'm much more aware of how he would like me to sit down next to him. We talk. Um, he's a people person. And um, I'm all about doing lots of things. So I think asking, again, asking the Lord, please give me wisdom on what needs to be done. And... My son, Walter, who is our oldest, has said to me several times, Mom, you need a helper because I have been working, worked on a little book last year and worked on another book this year. And 
I'm not a good paper organizer. So uh, he said, you need somebody to come and organize your papers, do little things like make a reservation for something or get a plane fare for something. He said, you, you don't need to be doing all the things you think you have to be doing. So the Lord has blessed me with my mother's half of her royalties from her books. So that has really helped to be able to hire somebody. And I, I, I am aware, again, that my husband doesn't have as much to do as I do. He is nine years older than I am. And so he really appreciates it if I just come sit. And I do often read books out loud to him. And um, that really gets us both talking about the books and helping us to get through some books. We have lots of wonderful books in our house. And I look at them very sadly and think, I'm never going to get through all those books. Many of them were my mother's books. And not the one she wrote, but one she had in her bookcases. And I just think one day at a time, one thing at a time, the Lord is to be honored by us focusing on what he wants us to do. And in his retirement, we still feel strongly that we should be hospitable. We st I still, I'm, I have a little more bigger uh, expectation of myself that we should have people over at least once a week. My husband is not so uh, excited about that, but he does know and agree with me that we need to be Christ to our neighbors. And so um, I don't know if I answered that question at all. I get, get off on a wrong track, but anyway, may the Lord bless you all. And I will say my children are spread from England to California. And of course, I don't like it, but um, fortunately, we try to go and see almost all of them, except for England, three times we, during the year. And we, most of the American kids can get together for at least one holiday. And this summer, I am so excited because we have rented a big house with 15 bedrooms and we will have 28 shepherds all together, in-laws and children. We'll have 11 grandchildren, all of the kids, the kids from England with four kids are coming. And so I'm very, very thankful that we could do that. Okay, thanks for listening.